Well, thank you, Rebecca, for um, joining us today. Um, you are someone that I always kind of lean on when I have um, questions about homeowners associations or obviously buyers who are looking to purchase. Um, and I know just in this recent uh, year, you are kind of expanding and growing your business uh, as an HOA consultant. And um, so wanted to kind of bring you on here and pick your brain really, because um, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed with homeowners associations over the years. Um, there's a lot of new, um, I guess, just disclosure requirements that um, homeowner associations need to make. There's a lot of new buyers that are first time buyers that are entering our market that have no clue what homeowner associations are, um, what resale certificates are. Um, and so I think discussing those and giving some sort of foundational um, foundation to uh, that is is really important. So um, I cut like I said, I look to you like you're the complete expert on all this because you've been in the field for so long and um, you've been kind of a saving grace in, in many different situations for me. So I, I really appreciate you and, and thank you for being here today. Yes, thank you for having me. <laughs> Good. So. Um, do you want to kind of just jump in and to the basics of um, homeowner associations and maybe resale certificates? I know you kind of have a different uh, or a way that you want to kind of um, go through all the information because it's a lot of information and I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours about it. There is a significant amount and yes, we could. Of course, we don't want to do that because who wants to listen to hours? Um, but I do try to approach every resale certificate from the same angle, which is to help buyers first understand what are all these documents? What exactly are they? And sometimes you get one PDF that's 500 pages long and sometimes you have numerous attachments of documents that are labeled sometimes correctly or not. So the first phase is to just decipher the information and put the, doc <clears throat> put the documents together in a way that we can understand what are they. And then I like to dig into the documents um, from a couple different angles. I like to look at governance, maintenance, and financial as three different categories for how to look at risk. And then all those documents back up into those different categories where we can find clues about those different pieces in the information. And as you know, they can be wildly variable in what they produce and what they the format they're given, as you know. Everyone has their own, all the management companies have their own different formats to how they portray the information. Um, all the associations have different formats for meeting minutes and just like all that sort of thing. So it is, it is something that, um, you know, it's very difficult to um, go through all that information um, and be able to compare them, you know. It really is. Yes, I did. I took a um, hundred reviews that I did this year just to get some some context. And I had 48 different sources of production for those reviews. So every other one came from a different place, whether it was a different management company or a self-managed association that had no management company. So just the wildly various ways that information arrives is significant. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, do you kind of want to dive in, like I said, on just a the resale certificate, or do you want to talk about homeowner associations? Sure, let's talk about both. Yeah, <laughs> they go together. <laughs> um, I think what I find, in, one of the things I find really interesting about the document packages, um, going back to the governance side, is 
what I really try to help a buyer understand is what are their specific maintenance and repair replacement responsibilities. And specifically, we try to dig into windows because those are usually and can be a tricky point. I've read numerous declarations and the word window doesn't even show up. It's not even in there, the word at all. So trying to understand when might you be responsible to pay for replacing your own windows is one of the critical things I look for. Um, and the governing documents from a, a governance standpoint, sometimes it doesn't matter what the documents say because they may or may not be following them. So we have to follow the trail a little bit to say, okay, buyer, here's what these documents say are they doing it? And could there be risk or not related to whether they're following the governing documents, which that can be challenging to determine too. Sure. Good, and other things like, you know, it's the roof, it's um, elevators, I think are a big expense that also you kind of come up and usually they kind of talk about service um, on the elevator side and then also there'll be replacement for that too. But those are kind of the big ticket items that we see a lot. We do, and they go in cycles, you know, I mean, we see stages of, and, and often it relates to construction cycles. So buildings that were all built around a certain time tend to need to replace the roofs around all the certain times, depending, of course, on if they've maintained or not. But it does go in cycles. So we do kind of look at those big stages of construction booms, and then it makes sense when we see, when we start to see, like now we're starting to see plumbing replacement. So plumbing only lasts a certain amount of time. At some point you have to replace those pipes. So if you're looking at purchasing in an older building, sometimes it's important to understand what has been already replaced because if it hasn't, chances are it will need to be in the future. And that's where the reserve study can really help us identify <laughs> or try to anyway. <laughs> I into that because that, that's the tool for breaking down, I guess, or identifying where the life cycle is and what approximate costs would be. Yes, and, and I find um, the reserve study ends up being quite a bit of our discussion with the buyer because it is one of the, the few documents we have to look at the future. When you get your resale certificate, a lot of it is here's previous historic information. Here's last year's financials. Here's meeting minutes from meetings we had before. So the reserve study is, is the closest thing we have to what might be coming and how much might that cost. And so what buyers struggle to understand is where are those variables in those projections? Um, we've seen hundreds of reserve studies that are just flat out wrong, are excluding information. We see reserve studies where they have a note that said, the board asked us to remove this from the reserve study. So the reserve study can be a little tricky if you don't know where to look or how to interpret it. Yep. And another big challenge we have with identifying uh, potential expenses are the soft costs related to those material expenses. Um, some reserve studies include some of that additional expense, um, but many just focus on material costs, which is what they're obligated to include. So that's a big piece we dig into is if the reserve study says this, what does it really mean to you as a buyer or what might it mean? What is the legal requirement for homeowners associations to keep up on the, um, the reserve studies? 
That is a great question, especially in light of some of the challenges we've seen in the news with condominiums and, and their lack of um, addressing issues. Uh, Washington State requires, the law says they're required to get a reserve study annually every year. They're required to do an on-site visit every three years and an update annually. But as you know, if that law is never enforced, which it isn't, then we have a lot of non-compliance. So we have quite a few associations who do get reserve studies every year and probably more who don't. I think the smaller guys, smaller buildings and HOAs don't don't keep up quite as much um, with that. I think actually I had one in the last year that the last time they did one was in 2018 or something like that. And so at that point, I, would you advise a buyer? Are you just kind of letting them know that, hey, this is the law and, um, you know, buyer beware type of thing? Or is there I know there's no recourse, but what would Good you question. Do? That is a great question because sometimes it depends on what the reserve study says. So for example, if that 2018 reserve study says you have no projected reserve expenses for five years, then maybe it's okay we don't have a current study because we can assume and we can see in the meeting minutes that they haven't and we can connect the dots between their financials. But if we have a 2018 reserve study that says it's time to replace your roof next year and we have crickets from then on, then we wanna dig in a little bit more and try and figure out was that reserve study accurate and did they agree with it, comply with it or just toss it aside. Um, so it's some, it depends. And that's, I think, what's valuable and challenging about resale certificates is they're, uh, each of them are 100% different from the next one, even at the same building. I did a review recently for the same building that was six months apart. And the two reserve studies were significantly different within that six month period. So the first buyer said, oh, you've got about 10 years before you're going to have to look at windows and doors. They got an updated reserve study six months later and said, well, you've actually got four years. It's like, oh, okay. So even familiarity with a building can be dangerous because the information can change really quickly. How many um, reserve study consultants uh, are there out there? Are there just like a couple major players in that field or are there several of them out there? There's about five or six we see consistently. Um, and then sometimes the engineering firms do more complex or complicated reserve studies. Um, there are a number of reserve study providers who are a little bit more cut and paste, you know, that, that tend to just plug numbers and go. And then there's reserve study providers who put a significant amount of more detail and attention and effort into their studies. So there's a huge range of providers, but there's probably about five or six that are pretty consistently showing up. And I would imagine those that are doing the high rises are maybe a little bit more involved and the budget line for the reserve study is a little bit more to pay for the more robust kind of you know, study and, and inspection and all that sort of thing. We would hope so. <laughs> we would hope so. But I think, and I think you and I talked about one that we, we looked at recently where we had a reserve study that said our 30 year projection is about 31 million in expenses. And then two years later, that association hired an engineering firm to do a reserve study. And they said, actually, it's more like 51 million in 30 years. So there can be huge differences between, are we just looking at things um, visually or are we really digging into performance and records and real projected costs? 
So it's a difference between something like a, an auto maintenance schedule or a mechanic really digging in and looking at things closely. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so I kind of wanted to also, is there anything on resale certificates that you wanted, or sorry, the uh, reserve study that you wanted to kind of touch on? Um, I think another confusing point, um, which is also really hard to discuss and explain is, is the percent funded benchmark and data point. So a lot of people say, well, this association is X percent funded, therefore it's either good or bad. And that that's a dangerous data point, but it's a common one that we use because it's a number, it's something we can point to, it's in a report, it's very official, but that can be a little bit deceiving. So I've looked at resale certificates where the, they say they're 80% funded and preparing for a million dollar special assessment next year. So sometimes those reserve studies can be really deceptive when we look just purely at percent funded. It's, it depends on what's included and what's excluded. Yep. And so you dive through that and you kind of say, well, it's because of this and this, and even though maybe it's 60% funded, that it's still a decent building based on the maintenance schedule and based on what they have in the reserves and all that sort of thing. So it's kind yes. of a, uh, in a weird way, it's like a credit score because credit score, you know, there's all these different variables that have to do with the credit score and someone could, you know, pay, pay you know, they have a trade lines that let's say go back five years and they have paid their payments, every, you know, on time every single time. Um, but yet their score will be less than, you know, a person who also has the same amount of trade lines open, who has 10 years of established credit or whatever. Right. Yeah. And then there's all these other factors that go into it. Um, so it's, it's a guiding, it's a guideline, but not necessarily, you have to kind of read between the lines, I guess. Absolutely. And, and I say that I use the term connect the dots a lot. And with those resale certificate packages, you have to look at, you can't just look at one of those in pieces independently. If you take the reserve study and then compare it to the previous two years of financials, then you can sometimes fill in the blanks. If you take that reserve study and compare it to the meeting minutes or the budget and say, wait a minute, these don't quite match. So where are those gaps? Mm -hmm. And that's where I've gotten pretty good at being able to work the puzzle, you know, put, put all the pieces out and then put them together. And then, oh, here's where, here's where the, the risk or the tipping point or the risk point sits visually. I see it. Yeah, so that's a fun way to do it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's easy to, a way to also explain to the buyers too, so that they could kind of see that they all actually intertwine and connect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, with the resale certificate itself, um, I know you touched on that there's so many different formats and, and ways that the, the management companies or self-management or self-managed HOAs uh, provide the information. Um, when you get that report and you're going through it, what are the first couple things that you're looking for? First, I'm looking for, do you have all the pieces of the resale certificate? Did you, did the seller meet state law requirements and provide you what they should? And interesting point, last year, I had a 98% problem rate. So 98% of the resale certificates were incorrect or illegal on the first attempt. And sometimes that's just a timing thing. Sometimes it's, they didn't order the update yet. So here's the resale certificate from January of 2020. Well, okay. Um, this year we're up to about a 78% incorrect. So we've dropped, which is good, but 78% of resale certificates in my experience have been illegal or incorrect. And there's degrees to that, whether it's reserve study attached, it's not attached 
or meeting minutes are attached or they're not. So sometimes it's just technical errors, but there are significant challenges with compliance. Um, there are several management companies whose forms are leave out some statutory requirements. So because their form isn't compliant, none of them are compliant. So there's quite a few of those. And I've anecdotally heard about some challenges with illegal resale certificates and the statute's limitations for timing, um, which is a huge risk for the seller, which is an, another interesting angle for these resale certificates is yes, buyers need to understand the risk, but as a seller, you also need to understand the risk if you can't produce a legal resale certificate. That's a good point. I mean, I kind of look at you like you saved my butt and that, you know, whenever I have you review something, it's not me checking the boxes and I'm going through all the documents, right? You're, you're doing that because you know specifically what to look for because I'm obviously, you know, trying to um, provide the buyer with all the information and resources that, that they need. Um, but yeah, for a seller and also the sellers are not really that you'd assume that they're educated and they, they know about, you know, their, the laws and what they're required, but they don't. And then you get into their listing agent. Well, is their listing agent telling them they need to, you know, provide these things? And more more often than not, probably probably not. So they don't. Yeah, they don't. And I'm finding it also pretty fascinating. A lot of the these companies use a third party provider to produce a resale certificate, mm -hmm. which is fine. You know, HomeWise, a condo certs, all these all these, you know, the standard reports you see, and those are fine. But it's a matter of garbage in and garbage out. So if they don't upload information, then you don't get it. it. It doesn't get produced. And then there are also times where to the management company's defense, if the board doesn't give them meeting minutes, they can't upload the meeting minutes. So there's a lot of breakdowns in that communication trail and that documentation trail from multiple angles. And it all winds up being produced in a resale certificate. So unwinding that can sometimes lead to hey, management company, you should fix your form because they're all wrong. Or seller, you should, too late. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we actually just had a um, question here. What happens if the buyer is given an incorrect or illegal resale certificate? So what would be, I guess, the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario for the buyer is they don't get important information they want to know before they purchase. So that then it's a that, that's more of an as-is purchase, good luck. The risk for the seller is if you can't produce a legal resale certificate, then the buyer can walk away up until conveyance, up until the time of conveyance and get all their earnest money back. So then you're back on market and starting over. So there, it can fall apart up until the very end if there's no legal resale certificate. For the buyer, it goes back to you may not know something that's really important. And for the seller, it's you might compromise your listing. And you and might have potential. some problems with getting lending too. Mm -hmm. so it might be yes. if lenders specifically ask for something and if the building can't provide it. I, I think I ran into this one with um, some sort of earthquake insurance certificate or whatnot, and they could not provide it. And it was just a big fiasco with the lenders. So that, that's also an important aspect of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. On resource certificates, um, when you're looking at the information for like special assessments and, and all that sort of thing, is there something specific that you need to look for? Um, with that in terms of repayment or how they're being collected? Yeah, I think that um, special assessments are also confusing. They're scary. And there are quite a few 
existing special assessments in place. We see them all the time. We see them being talked about all the time. So I think one of the first misconceptions that people have is that they're unusual. And special assessments happen all the time. They're actually frequent and common and more normal than not, which is quite fascinating. If you, if you look at all the data and compile it, you would see that they're probably more common than not. Um, and ways to potentially identify special assessments go back to looking at the maintenance, the governance and the financial all together. So for example, if the governing documents say owners are responsible for windows, then we can dial in and look at that specific risk based on other aspects. Um, one being, if you're responsible for windows and the siding has never been replaced, then you should maybe think about how that those activities could be integrated. And then if there's a special assessment for that type of work, how do those integrate um, those different types of, of obligations? Um, but special assessments can be obviously hard to predict. And the biggest factor is the human factor. They may decide, they may not. And then you might get a new board member who decides or not. Um, so special assessments can be all over the place, but I think an important thing to really start communicating to buyers is that they're not unusual. They're very, very common. Yeah, and I think that um, with the special assessment, you know, it's very hard for a building. Uh, have you ever seen actually this question, a building, um, let's say of the age of 20, 20 to 30, that has not had a special assessment? Oh, yeah. Okay. So that what, means they need one. <laughs> yeah, what'd you say? That means they need one. Yes. So, and that's usually right around the, the point, right? That 20 to 30 mark is where the special assessments. So with the buildings that are older and maybe they've been ran more conservatively to where maybe they're collecting, you know, really high, you know, dues for reserves. Um, I mean, what's the percentage of buildings that are, that operate like that? Very few. Yeah. Um, because usually the older communities, older buildings built in the eighties and nineties, some of them had a harder time funding reserves because it pushed their monthly dues to a point where lenders couldn't fit that into their model for for ratio of sale price. So special assessments became a way to pay for things outside of that lender and financing restriction. Mm -hmm. Because if you really funded the building the way you should, your dues would have been triple what they really are. And you can't finance a, build, a, a sale with that type of structure. Um, some buildings have prepared a little better than others for that work, but with the increase in construction costs, it's really hard to keep up. And then if one year you drop your contribution and don't keep up, you're, you're exponentially behind. Mm -hmm. So it's much more common to see a 20 or 30 year old building need a large special assessment than a small one. Because usually if it's 20 or 30 years old and they haven't done major work, they don't have enough money. And then, and then it's time to do the big special assessment. So then if you were consulting a building that was maybe around that like 10 to 15 year mark, I mean, where do you see the dues start to increase to kind of overcompensate for maybe the lack of reserves or in preparation for what's to come in the future year? That's a good question. I, I, my sense is, and we have to look at types a little bit different. Towers are a little different than townhome and um, towers are kind of a whole different ball game. Yep. 
other other types of communities by the time you get to roof replacement then you know if you're going to make it to the next phase because roofs usually come first so if we can't even make it to replacing roofs without millions of you know a million dollar special assessment then you should probably assume that you you'll have some funding challenges going forward sometimes when you get to that stage where oh no we have to replace our roof and we haven't funded for it that becomes correction course so then we say okay let's fund our roof let's get it done and going forward we don't want to be in this position again so let's raise our dues and fund our reserve account um, and i think one good example i looked at ballard condominium and ballard place fairly recently and those are pretty good comparable buildings same rough size age rough size of units one building and one of them has significantly higher dues than the other because they're contributing more to reserves twice as much and it's because they have an issue they have to deal with so that can all play into it is how do you project and then how conservative can you be and every building's different but i do often see that if they get into trouble and have to fix something and, and assess themselves sometimes that's a catalyst for let's fix it now going forward yep gotcha um and because we're kind of going in order let's say a, a new building that just opens up and i wanted to circle back around to because you do help with um forming you know the hoa um and giving your thoughts basically on the declaration and ccnrs and all that sort of thing too um, but on a building that is like you know is relatively new but maybe hitting like that three to four year mark you know we always know that there's the litigation um and the developer you know the warranty period that comes into play there um do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit sure it's pretty interesting because you know seattle we haven't had a whole lot of new construction in the past five years to see how that statute of limitations turns over um, and then we've also had new state laws so in 2018 wakiowa had some restrictions about um, dispute resolution and litigation for new buildings. So it's going to be interesting to see how these new towers work through those alternative dispute resolution restrictions and requirements differently than in the past. I think we may also see, hopefully, some better construction practices so we don't have as many construction defects um, that was part of the intent of RCW 6455 was to stop the problem before we have the problem. So on the new construction side, I feel like buildings are hopefully being built better. So there's less problems to resolve. But I feel like for a newly constructed building about the year six to eight is when it really tends to stabilize. Mm -hmm. you, you see them go through the four year statute where we figure out, you know, live in it work on it, see what happens, how does it perform, and then fix it, and then you're stable. So about that six to eight year mark is about the time I, when I look historically at data, when I see the operating expenses start to level, and then we have about three, four years of consistent, okay, now we're, now we're there. So I guess if you had a very over analytical buyer and they are into the numbers and they're into risk mitigation, you'd probably say that they would they would be looking a good candidate for buildings that are probably in that period of six years and older. Yes. Probably six, six to 10 year mark. With yes. Selling in five after they own. <laughs> yeah. Maybe even maybe even up until year 15 ish. Yeah, 15 ish. Yeah. Yeah. Because we haven't hit any major renewal yet by then. By about your, you know, if the building turns 15 to 18, maybe maybe we start to see, you know, things that 
need to be repaired that haven't been funded for or performance issues by that point. Yep. Good stuff. We can talk about this forever. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's also, I guess, on the new construction side, another interesting thing is we go back to reserve studies and I'm finding it quite fascinating. So um, reserve studies, homeowner associations are required to get a level one study once in their entire existence. One time is all they're required to get. And the level one is the most detailed, thorough, the best type of, you know, most analysis you can get. And then the level two is a site visit and a level three is a no site visit update. What I find fascinating is how the newer construction and new towers don't get a level one early in the life cycle. So the funding is challenged out of the gate yeah. um, because we're looking at, and I just looked at one the other day for one of our new towers that's working off a 2019 study that was based on plans. Okay, here's the reserve study that's based on what you tell us you're maybe going to build. And that's what they're basing their budgeting contribution off is those recommendations. So I find it fascinating that we're waiting so long to do a level one when that should be in place by year two, I think. Yeah. Do you think that there's a reason why a developer wouldn't be doing that? Or they just like lost knowledge or? Um, Maybe they just don't know they should be. Maybe some of both, but there's some, you know, financial related issues, of course. Um, and if the developer still owns a significant number of units, they have to, you know, if the assessment's required to be increased to fund a reserve more appropriately, that, that's a, an issue. Um, but I don't know. I think it's almost more, I'm not sure. I think in the new construction world, we're, we're so focused on uh, warranty review, which we should be during that four-year statute of limitations, that sometimes that gets set aside because it's not as critical. It's not as meaty. It's not as you know, it doesn't produce as much maybe resolution or need to resolve. Um, but I disagree because I see those when they do finally do one, that's like, oh, and then I go back to, shouldn't you catch that stuff really early in the life of the building to make sure we're on track? Um, so that's something I'd really like to see different on the new construction side is more attention to a level one reserve study right away. Mm -hmm. So going then to how i guess the the declarations are formed for all these buildings and how they do come out of the ground right um and uh, the public the pos public offering statement and all that sort of thing um do you you dive into all that stuff and you consult with yeah what are some things i guess that you look for out the gate or um i guess that would pose it seems to me that everything is pretty standard, right? When you're diving into the declaration and certain CCNRs, but is there anything that's glaring to you or is that actually not true? They're all very, very unique and different. That's a good question. There are definite similarities because they have to comply with state law. So state law says these things must be in documents. So documents have a lot of consistency, but there can be significant variance. Some developers want to have, um, you know, at, at one point, one of our, our declarations had pretty strict and extensive architectural guidelines in the actual declaration, which then meant that the board had to strictly comply. So there's a difference in obligation from a board for language in a declaration versus language and rules. 
So the hierarchy is federal law, state law, declaration, then rules. So there have been some shifts and adjustments in how do we write declarations that aren't so restrictive we can't comply or cause legal problems because we aren't complying, but still give the restrictions we need. And then the latest version of those, those types of restrictions give, um, they're much more brief. That section has become very slim and the architectural guidelines allow the board to establish a process and rules that works, not the declaration drive how you build the process. So sometimes that can be a huge part of it is how do you actually implement the declaration? How do you actually do what it says you're supposed to do? A good one is a lot of them say you're required to do a building enclosure inspection every year. Well, they don't. So what's the, you know, so there's quite a few of those pieces where I think we're getting, I think the documents are getting somewhat clearer sometimes, um, but then it depends on the attorney who writes them. Yeah. It also, I mean, it depends on the boards too, mm -hmm. right? So um, I think that in the more um, sophisticated, let's say board um, that is very litigious, that understands the legal requirements and, and documents, they're going to, they're going to, be privy to those things, right? Yes. Um, and the things that are required. And I've seen even just living downtown in certain buildings, you know, the different amendments, you know, why this doesn't work, this we're not structured like this anymore, we need to make this amendment. And like those come up per periodically in our building or have and other buildings too. Um, but I, I, you know, the execution of what lays in, in the, the declaration really does depend on the board to pick up and actually execute or alter. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that some of the, you know, everyone's volunteers on these boards and either they're educated and they understand the role that they've stepped into. And it's a very much a thankless job. <laughs> um, and it, you know, takes a lot of energy and effort to be on a, a condo board. Um, but it's definitely, it's not about, I guess, the, just the documentation within the building. It's the people that's also implementing, you know, the rules, the declaration, the, you know, everything. We talk a lot about that a lot too in our reviews is the biggest variable and unknown is the human factor. Yep. You could, tomorrow you could have a new board and they may decide that here's our priority and off you go. So there is a significant variance in, in the human factor and how they read the documents, how they interpret them, how they apply them. I've seen documents that say, pets are allowed up to this point. And then somebody on the board made a rule that says no pets are allowed ever. So the, I mean, there can be huge ranges of that people factor. And I've also find a lot of boards who never read their documents to begin with. They just don't even read them, let so alone in, understand them. So in that case, and this happens a lot with rentals too, because we mm -hmm. do a fair amount of rental stuff. So we do run into, okay, what's in the declaration? What's in the, the um, because that would be bylaws or declaration? Depends, usually declaration. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then, then you have a board that makes up these rules. What is 100% concrete? Is it the declaration? Declaration. Or mm -hmm. okay. Yep. So, so that. Yeah, and and that's you know we, uh, the hierarchy: federal law, state law, declaration. It's the legal recorded document tied to your title. Mm -hmm. So that's much more difficult to change than rules. And the declaration says usually they, in various ways, the board has the ability to establish rules and regulations above and beyond what's in the declaration as long as they don't contradict so the board can say okay pets are allowed however they must be 20 pounds they must not bark they must do this which could restrict that so there's ways they can do that but the language and the hierarchy is the rules are 
um, much less restrictive than the declaration. Got it. That's good to know. Anything else interesting or red flags that you see in the declaration bylaws? Um, I think a challenge that we're seeing consistently with all the governing documents is when the state law changes, sometimes that new state law overrides your documents and we don't, your, your declaration isn't a living document. Um, one of the, the changes in the new state law, which I don't know, it's three years old now, it's not really that new, um, says that no matter what your documents say, unless it's a higher provision, that budgets, which assessments are based on budgets, the new law says that unless a majority of owners vote no, whether or not a quorum is present, those budgets are ratified as long as they follow the process to present it and do all these things. So I think that's an interesting point is that even if you do read your governing documents, you may not fully know, and I don't, I'm not an attorney either, I don't fully understand where they aren't right or not, but there can be a lot of variance in how they're applied or where now your documents are illegal because the state law changed. And that's one of them. I did one the other day and the declaration said, 67% of the owners have to vote to approve a special assessment. So I was able to tell the buyer, actually, no, <laughs> in this case, that doesn't apply anymore. So it actually, a majority of owners would have to show up and vote no for it to not be approved. So that kind of tied in a little bit to, you know, the news about our condo in Miami, that if owners choose to vote no, that's very different than voting yes. So are, are we giving owners the obligation and the responsibility they should, which is to vote? And in Washington state, we do have that, definitely. Um, so I think that's an interesting point of governing documents that they can change, the laws can change, yep. and they can be technically very incorrect. Anything you want to kind of touch on before we kind no, of- No, it looks like now somebody had a question. Um, okay. Does a person writing the certificate need a certain license? Good question. Um, the state law says the resale certificate must be signed by an agent of the association or an agent who has direct knowledge and the seller. So no, anybody can produce it. Um, my understanding is you don't, you know, you can pick out a form and chalk one up, but the seller's obligation to sign and an agent of the association who has knowledge of the content is the benchmark for requirement. Um, so I actually do some consulting work with some associations to tell them how to produce their resale certificate, which is, that's what they need is just help with how to do it. So you don't need to be licensed to do that. What are the, on the resale certificate, um, what are the major, I guess, category? I mean, I see them quite often, so I kind of know, but maybe if you want to just share like the, the major things that need to be on that certificate. Sure. Um, and it's a confusing term. A resale certificate is a set of statements and a set of documents. So it's a whole bunch of things. It's not just a report. It's not just a bunch of attachments. It's both. Um, we call sometimes we call it a resale certificate disclosure report and that's where you would find answers to all the statements that the state law requires so for example the state law says you must include a statement that says x so then on your report here's the statement um, we run into some challenges with timing on those statements so one is 
you have to include a statement that's current to within 45 days of any amount owed to the association 30 days or more past due and amount owed by the association 30 days or more past due. So that usually shows up in a report because it's not in, sometimes they'll attach an, a report that shows that like a financial report, but that's a statement. So the report disclosure can usually have, or that's where you usually find answers to all of the questions that the law says you must answer. And then in addition to that are the attachments. So for example, you have to provide the declaration, you have to provide bylaws, you have to provide um, annual financials for the previous year, the current operating budget. So there's a set of attachments that have to be there um, and also answer a bunch of questions. So where I find a lot of the technical legal issues show up in answering all those questions less so in the attachments, but they're also. <laughs> um, and then another one I ran into is insurance related. Um, the, the state law says the seller has to provide a statement of coverage, whether that's a description in words of what's covered or what's most commonly provided is a certificate of insurance that shows here's the dollar amounts and here's what's included. Um, sometimes that one can get be tricky to get, but we get that usually through title and escrow anyway. Yep. That's also an important piece. It's part of the discussion. And there've been a few times where I've seen the insurance certificate and it's been a little bit of a red flag that when I then connect the dots, here's why. Oh. Um, so what would be a red flag yeah. then? So let me tell you. Um, one of the insurance certs, <laughs> one of them said, um, the most common coverage associations carry is walls in tenant improvement betterments coverage. And if that says we specifically exclude that on the insurance certificate, that's unusual. And this one did. It said we specifically exclude tenant improvement walls in. And it was because this association needed to do about an $8 million rehab. So the insurance provider said, since your building is leaking and failed, the building envelope has failed, we're not gonna insure anything on the interior because the risk is too high. So as soon as they do that full strip and reclad, then they'll get their full coverage back. Got it. Well, then that poses issues with lenders and yeah. Mm -hmm. Work on the building. <laughs> Gotta feel sorry for those situations for sure. Well, and by then it's just so it, it's too late. You, I mean, you just have to get through it. You have to either find a cash buyer or wait till the work is done, yep. which, you know, and we do see, as you know, quite a, quite often that when those full strip and reclad projects get done, the, the resale value significantly goes up. Yep, for mm -hmm. sure. There's something to be said about that too. Mm -hmm. And I tell, you know, buyers, that's another thing buyers can get clearer about once we go through, here's the pros and cons of special assessments, right? The, the con is the worst kind of special assessment is the catastrophic, no one knew it was coming, mm -hmm. clueless. The okay special assessments are, if we do this, you'll generate another hundred grand in resale value on the backside. And there's lots of ways for associations to make that more manageable for buyer or for homeowners, which is financing those repair projects. So homeowners don't have to come up with a chunk of money, they can finance it. And then when they go to sell the unit, they just pay off the balance of the special assessment with all their equity and increased value they've gained. Yep, absolutely. 
Good. Well, why don't we talk a little bit um, about your services and, and as a whole um, and kind of what you're looking to do. I know you've been working this last year on your database of the different projects out there. Um, and I know you showed it to me a couple of weeks ago and I was just so impressed um, by all the data and you're definitely very data driven, which is awesome. Um, so go ahead and share a little bit more about you on that, that room. Thank you. Yes, I've had to formalize how I provide these reviews. So it took a while to figure out how to take all these different document packages with different data and in different ways. Um, so I've come up with a pretty good system that allows us to compare and contrast more compatibly. Of course, there's still some variables. Um, but I'm also really close to launching my new website, which will be more resale certificate focused. Um, under my CIC consulting group entity. So I'm going to switch over and do a little bit more specific consulting work um, instead of my BBF resources and really focus on the resale certificate review site um, to drive more specific messages. Um, so it'll be a good place to go. Any, anything you want to know about resale certificates, that'll be a good jumping off point to learn. I'm gonna do some more education um, and do a little bit of training for brokers um, and all kinds of different consulting stuff. So that's exciting. Awesome, and then for those agents out there or just buyers in general who want to have hire you um, to review, I mean, what that process, I know what it's like, but if you wanna share just what that process entails. Sure, yes, and it's, um, I try to be really efficient um, Often I get contacted through a broker, but I do also work directly with sellers and I've actually done quite a few more of those as, as people refer me, which is great. Um, but my first step is to first look at the documents you get. So I have brokers who just, and, and other people who send me these, send me documents and say, are we good to go? Um, once we know we have a complete resale certificate, then we schedule a Zoom screen share conference meeting. So I can show you what you've got and walk you through the documents. And then we can look at my database and plug in some charts and numbers and really dig into data. Um, and that's where we can compare and say, is this normal? Um, in addition to our gut feeling and all the data we see in this package, financially and from a comparison point, is this normal in the world of gondos? Um, and then during that meeting, the buyer gets to ask a bunch of questions, as many as they want. Um, and sometimes we do follow up afterwards. So we have done a few reviews where we find that we're missing something. So we'll look at it afterwards and just make sure that the buyer has all their questions answered. So I try to do it as clean and simple and efficient um, in that mad stage of we're under contract. Oh no, <laughs> go. <laughs> do you have time for this? We have a three day contingency. <laughs> Yes, and on that note, that's the one. Okay, let, biggest pet peeves. Let's talk pet peeves. Not a pet peeve, but a big challenge that we have with the resale certificates is the assumption that we can reduce the review period. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of brokers who say we have a three-day review period. Okay, well, the state law says a buyer has five days to review a resale certificate, and you cannot waive the state law. Even if you write a different number in the purchase and sale agreement, you can't. <laughs> I mean, you can. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun one, is trying to delicately, you know, navigate that conversation with a buyer whose broker has told them. So sometimes, and you know what, honestly, that usually works out okay because 78% of the time we have to wait for the full resale certificate anyway. Yep. So I do try to 
work with buyers when their brokers want to be competitive, okay, great, write whatever you want. It's not enforceable, but know that if you do write in a short contingency, you probably have a lot longer because the chances that you'll get the legal resale cert right out of the gate are pretty slim. Yeah, like I said, you've saved me a bunch and it's when you're in a transaction, you have so many things going on. This is kind of like one of those, it's an inspection basically. It is. And so mm -hmm. I think that everyone should be treating this process. You have your, your inspector doing the inspection on the physical. You have your inspector, Rebecca, doing the inspection on the resale box basically. Yeah. It's a pretty um, easy piece yeah. to, to carve out too for brokers and buyers, right? Because it's it, here you go. And then you go get more buyers and sellers and go deal with all the real estate transaction things that you have to deal with for this. And, and then I can help the buyer understand and ask questions. And, and I found that maybe I've, out of all the reviews I've done, maybe five or six times at the most, a buyer has decided not to proceed. Yep. The rest of the time, they're just thrilled. They know more. They just want to know. And yep. we talk a lot about how unknown risk is the worst risk. If we know the risk, then we're okay with it. Usually um, they choose to manage it because by the time we're under contract, they want the unit. This is the unit they picked. They want to live here. They're, they're installing furniture. Um, so this is just the, the final yes, no, maybe, unless there's something crazy or critical, they're just happy they know what to expect and, and what to be prepared for while they live there. Um, so we have about 10 minutes, nine minutes here. And so I know we had a couple um, fun things you want to touch on. Different trends you're seeing with um, current buildings. Ooh. Oh, boy. Insurance is huge. We're seeing huge um, outside of towers, lots of water losses, lots of leaks, lots of water damage. So we're seeing lots of buildings adjust their insurance coverage. Deduct the deductibles are going way up. And we're seeing some associations write in their documents requiring owners to carry more liability coverage. So that's a tricky one. Um, and that goes back to cyclical construction. Pipes are starting to fail. So buildings that are starting to fail, here we go. <laughs> Something also that might be happening in the last year specifically is everyone's been living so hard in their units, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone at the same time are flushing their toilets, using the faucets, doing all that sort of thing, which has never happened before. Yes. Um, so that, that I think is a main contributing factor. There's leaks going on, like you said, everywhere downtown. Like every building literally has three or three plus leaks going on. And I think that that is, that is why it's very yes. Another thing I find too is that condo owners tend to forget they're supposed to do maintenance. Yep. You are supposed to look at your hoses and your seals and do some caulking every now and then. This is yep. important. So that that's another factor is that a lot of and and we see a lot of first home buyers buying condos and you buy a condo because you don't want to do any maintenance. Great, but we still need to do some interior work. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Reminder. Mm -hmm. um, any other trends or that's pretty much the big one that you're That was, you know, I guess the other big one we talked about was just seeing the progression of new buildings. Um, doing these resale certificate reviews, as you get more of the data, you can put the history together. So if we lined up 10 towers and looked at their first 10 years of their lifespan, you see a pretty consistent pattern. So watching these new towers come on, we're 
just going to repeat patterns. So it does give a little different layer of predictability is if history is a predictor of the future, here's what we can expect. And you kind of start to see it happening year two of the budget, year three. So I like that um, because it's reinforcing not only the data, but our perceptions about construction and cycles and condos. This is how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also finding it quite fascinating, the number of just bad reserve studies out there, yeah. which is so important. It's so critical. Should there be some sort of regulation, maybe hopefully kind of steps into to play there over the future years. Yeah, and we talked about that, you know, the resale certificate law, I mean, sorry, the reserve study law, there is a law. The law says you must get a reserve study every year, but there's no oversight, there's no accountability, there's no recourse. So it's a law that exists that it doesn't matter if you break it. So what's the point of that? Yeah. So enforcement is definitely a challenge. For sure. Um, where was one other thing that we talked about that I thought was um, interesting is the time of year when you purchase um, your favorite time of year, I guess, for buyers to come to you and, and for you to feel like you have all the information. Right? Oh, December by far. I yeah. love buying and selling condos in December. November and December is my favorite time of year, partly because I have a new budget for the next year. I have this year, almost the whole year of data and then usually two years of prior financials. So December of 2021, I'll have four years of data to work with. Mm -hmm. So that's my favorite time of year, just because you have a, a glimpse of what's coming next year. You've got this entire year's history and another two years of history in the financials. Um, and plus I, I feel like it's a little less, um, even though it feels like a little bit of a crazy time of year, I think buyers aren't as, they tend to be calmer, not as hectic. It's not a frenzy, a buying frenzy. It's a more thoughtful, um, intentional time to purchase. Yeah, no, that's definitely that type of market. It feels like everyone who is looking around that time frame has a very a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And we don't mess around with, you know, I don't get 30 calls from people like I do in July saying, can you do this? And then they just, you know, it's just chaos. <laughs> so I, I like December and, and it's really beautiful. I think, you know, Condos are beautiful in December. There's, it can be beautiful. <laughs> like your numbers, you like your data. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah, and that would be the the, the analytical like buyer definitely would have all the de the details and data that they would need to make sure that they're making the right move for themselves in that yes. period of time. And I love doing these to get the data because then it reinforces like my gut. Is my opinion right? Is what I think right? You know, based on my years of work. Is, is what I'm seeing right? Is this, am I right? Yes, <laughs> not always, but of course the data helps me form my opinions and, and point me to being a better consultant. If I, if I see hundreds of sets of documents, I can speak better about it and be clearer and helpful, more helpful with real information. Yeah. But yes, Good. I love it. <laughs> All right, we're gonna wrap up here. We only have a few more minutes and don't wanna get kicked off, but um, thank you so much. You are just a wealth of knowledge mm -hmm. and I always just love chatting with you. Um, and uh, so anyone who is viewing this, uh, we'll share uh, Rebecca's information if you don't have it. And um, if there's any questions, follow-up questions that you have, uh, feel free to reach out to her directly or to me. Um, and um, I just thank you so much for spending your time. And um, thank you.
you everyone for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. Yeah.